Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning. Um, I, before I uh, start uh, in with the message on James 2, I was just thinking about, you know, this during communion, that, you know, as we gather together as a, a family, right? That's what it's really all about, that God has called us into this family, and it's due to the shed blood of Jesus Christ that's made this possible. I, I was thinking about something that happened to me yesterday. I was getting my first uh, shot, my first COVID shot. They're doing all the educators this week, so it came down to Independence to do it. So we're going through um, this this building here, and you got different stations where they identify you and stuff like this, uh, Giant Eagles running this. I get to the sixth station, and uh, the woman who's there, she goes, so what, what do you teach? And I said, well, I teach AP English, I teach Christian ethics. And then she says, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith. First Peter 5, 8. I said, God bless you, sister. And she said, uh, you know what, I'm trying to read through the Bible uh, in one year. So I told her about my experience with that, you know, and what a blessing that is. And and it was kind of cool just realizing, hey, you know, called out into his family. We're we're all over the place, you know, everywhere you go. So uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share with you something from uh, the book of James. It's James chapter 2. And I believe that this particular chapter, James is getting into our faces here in 2021. This isn't just, apparently we've got the same problems now that they did back in his day. There's two things that he deals with here that are big deals that you and I need to hear, big problems in our culture. One is to confront our growing trend toward partiality. And I'll be explaining that. That's the first half of the chapter. And then uh, to rehabilitate our understanding of faith. Because apparently in uh, the time that James was writing, their understanding of faith was as dumbed down as the way we typically uh, look at it in our culture, too. So let's take a look at this particular chapter. I've got to start with this, uh, reading in the L.A. Times uh, last week, and one of their uh, uh, columnists there, a continual columnist, apparently they'd had a big, you know, she lives obviously out of the city, they had some kind of big snowstorm at her house, and her next-door neighbor came over and plowed her driveway. She said, he did a great job, you know, but she didn't know what to do with this because this guy, she said, is a Trumpite. And uh, her column was titled, What Can You Do About the Trumpites Next Door? And she's going like, I can't even bring myself to say thank you to this guy. Uh, she said because, you know, and then she's in her column, she's comparing this, this guy to like the uh, Nazi sympathizers that were in Paris during World War II who were good neighbors to people around them and to Hezbollah terrorists who uh, feed... Um, the poor, et cetera, in the neighborhoods. And uh, she, she, made, she said in the column, I also can't give my neighbors absolution. I mean, I can't forgive them. Uh, it's not mine to give. Free driveway work, as nice as, as it is, is just not the same currency as justice and truth. To pretend it is would be to lie, and they probably aren't looking for absolution anyway. Um, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know what? Every one of us in this room has got some Pharisee in us, right? Just like this woman right here. 
I mean, this kind of reminded me so much of that story that Jesus told of that Pharisee and the publican, right, from Luke, where it, it says there in Luke, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, there's that word from the columnist again, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Isn't it true? Like we got sort of rankings in our mind, or certain people we go like, yeah, that guy, you know, he's that he's weird, you know, he got a problem, you know, this kind of thing, or I'm disgusted with where he's coming from. And, and, and so we start to rank people, and then we start to mistreat them too. And uh, James confronts us. So he goes like, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. I'll just tell you a little sidelight here that in the first century when James is writing this, this is a Roman-dominated uh, culture. Wearing gold rings on your left hand was considered like, you know, a lot of gold rings on your left hand was considered a real sign of wealth. So people go, like, whoa, that guy's got bucks, you know, he's like majorly wealthy and stuff. And they even had stores where you could rent gold rings when you wanted to show off for, for people, okay? So you get a guy who comes in here who's a high roller, and you get some guy who's like, you know, he's like really poor and he's kind of messed up and everything. And uh, he says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on a floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? He goes on and he says, listen to me, my dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. You know, if you think about it, uh, throughout the history of, of Christianity, the ones who have responded to the gospel most have typically been people who just are down and outers. And you wonder, why is that? You know, and I think it, it makes sense, doesn't it, in a way? Because when you're hurting, when you're down and out, when you're poor, when you're messed up, man, you're really in touch with your needs many times. You know, you go, man, I need help. I need a savior. But, you know, and, you know, when you got it all together, you get kind of complacent. You start drifting. You know, you start thinking, eh, no problems. I got this thing by the tail. I got a system. I got it all worked out. And so he says, these are the people that, uh, you know, that are responding to the Lord. And then he goes like, and isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? And I thought, you know what, that's true. You know, we got this love affair with people who are celebrities, who've got money, you know, in the mansions and everything. But he's saying, you know, who are the, who are the guys who are really coming against in our culture, opposing the Christian message? Who are the ones who are putting their money toward undermining what the Bible says? Oftentimes it's like leaders of big tech. It's like major corporate bucks are being channeled into stuff like that. You know, wealthy special interest groups suing people because they're following their, their conscience. Uh, you know, Hollywood celebrities, you know, with all the money, and they're the ones who are really many times vocally opposed to, to the Lord. Big shot politicians. You know, he says, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ whose noble name you bear? You know, a guy who really uh, kind of experienced this was Martin Luther. 
It's interesting, I, I'm just finishing up this biography of Luther by Eric Metaxas. It's really an outstanding book, just uh, the guy's a good writer. And one of his chapters is called The Cloaca Experience, talking about the big turning point in Luther's life when he finally saw Jesus for who he really was. If you know anything about the, you know, the history of Luther, here was a guy that really struggled. He struggled with guilt, and he's going, can I ever be good enough for God? I, I, and he just beat himself up, and sometimes literally. And he would go to confession, trying to unload sin. He actually would spend sometimes six hours in the confession booth. He just drove these guys nuts. You know, the people he's confessing to would be going like, stop, go home, quit thinking of stuff, all that little minutiae kind of stuff and everything. You know, get out of here, you know. And he's going like, how can I get right with God? And he began to really detest God because he thought, man, he's my enemy, so I'm his enemy, you know. And, and um, he went to Rome, which was the headquarters of the church. And uh, there, he, he just, it didn't help him at all. In fact, it was the reverse. They just kept heaping it on, you know. And, and then he said that one day he was in the cloaca. And the word cloaca literally means sewer. It's the word for toilet. He was sitting on the toilet. He was reading the Bible. And he read, the just will live by faith. And he went, oh. It was like it hit him like a ton of bricks. And he said this, the Holy Spirit gave me this insight upon the outhouse. And then Luther kind of reflected on that. And he's, uh, Metaxas is kind of like um, paraphrasing him a little. He said, Luther had found the true grace, that true grace was concealed in the unadorned excrement of this broken world. And the devil's own excrement was concealed in the Pope's glittering gold. You know, he, he said, you know, when Jesus came, he came to a stable that was full of, like, animal waste, right? And his first visitors were, like, these lowly, lower-class, probably smelly shepherds that came. And it's like, that's, like, where the heart of God is. And, and so he's going, like, yeah. And, and, and sometimes the wealth of this world disguises just garbage underneath. And so uh, James is pointing out that very same thing here. You know, and it isn't just economic stuff, um, but sometimes it's other stuff, like, like this. This is a, a, a writer. I read his uh, columns in the Washington Examiner. He's an economist. His name is Stephen Moore. And Moore's wife, um, she had this best friend, and the best friend just stopped responding to her. You know, there'd be invitations, she wouldn't respond. It was just like total, like, blackout there. And um, she even, you know, this, this so-called friend of hers unfriended her on Facebook, just cut everything off. And so Moore's wife uh, got in touch with her, and she said, you know, um, what, what's the reason? Why is this? Have I offended you in any way? And this is what the woman responded. She said, John, that's her husband, John and I were so appalled by the things Steve writes, that we don't want to associate with you anymore. You know, it's based on some kind of political thing. You know, Stephen Moore is big on like tax cuts and stuff like that. That she's going like, I don't want to be in the same room. And Moore said, you know, what really hurt about that response was the word appalled. Because what you know what the word appalled implies? It goes like, we're better than you. You don't come up to our standards, and we don't want our hands to get dirty hanging out in the same room. Uh, that you are, you know, and it's like 
there's in, in our culture, I think there's just a lot of that political stuff going on where it's like we take that stuff personally and we start look, looking down on other people because like the woman who got her driveway shoulder, Trumpites, or they disagree with us in certain ways. And, and I, I just the other day I was in school, um, you know, I was getting some, um, another box or two of Kleenex from my, from my room from the nurse. And I go like, yeah, I need a couple of boxes. She said, you know, there are kids in school here who are afraid to blow their noses. She said, because if you blow your nose, people go like, whoa, you're a danger to me. You know, and we've become a culture that is so all about, you know, safety. And we're all about um, health. And, you know, we're looking at other people now in the last year as a threat to us. And we're going like, well, we'll treat them as less than because they might affect my well-being. And it's like, this, this is wrong. James says, yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone, but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. He's going, man, he says, this kind of, you know, discrimination is as, as serious as like murder. It's like being unfaithful to your wife. He's going like, that's, that's not good. I gotta tell you a story that uh, relates to this. There was a Bible study we go to on Tuesday and one of the uh, women there was telling a story about her son. Uh, her son was a really wayward guy uh, in and out of jail, had a real serious drinking problem. And uh, he had just, you know, he had, his marriage had broken up. His, uh, he had a three-year-old that he didn't have visitation rights for anymore. Uh, he's living in his car. And uh, he calls his mother on a Saturday night, and he goes like, Mom, I just, in case you don't hear from me again, he said, I'm thinking very seriously of killing myself this weekend. And she talked with him, and when the phone conversation was over, she prayed, Lord, please bring him into a church tomorrow morning. And the Lord answered her prayer. And uh, he, he, it turned out he wandered into a church. And he sat down in a back row, and he was there for the whole service. And nobody said anything to him or anything, and he gets up from the back seat, and he walks down into the children's section. And he's thinking about his little three-year-old that he hasn't seen for some time. And he goes down and he goes to the room where the three-year-olds are being taken. And he looks through the door and tears are coming down his face. And all of a sudden he feels a couple of hands on his shoulder, shoulders. And he turns around and there's two guys there. And they go, uh, sir, people are really uncomfortable with you. And it would really uh, be a good thing if you just leave the building. And so he left the building. And meanwhile, his mom is like calling the ex-wife and everything. And his ex-wife eventually found him. He was down at the subway station. He was sitting on a bench. This was about uh, 7 o'clock at night when she finally found him. And uh, she said, what are you doing here? He said, you know what? I came down here and I laid down on the tracks because I was waiting for the 6 o'clock train to come by and that was going to be it. And he said, didn't come by. And he said, then I realized it's Sunday night. Trains don't run on Sunday night in this town. So he says, here I am on the bench. 
And uh, so she called 911 and they took him to a psych hospital and he was there for a while. And while he was there, he met somebody who led him to the Lord and he came to know Jesus Christ. And I think of that story and I think like, wow, the church just kind of tossed him, you know, and he had to, he found the Lord in a psych hospital, right? And I understand why they felt that way at that church. I mean, you know, there are shady characters who come into church and there have been some incidences where people have gotten killed, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, in these rare instances, uh, I, and so I understand. But at the same time, you know, it's like James is saying, look at what do we put first? We've got to love our neighbor. And sometimes loving our neighbor means we've got to take the chance of meeting our neighbor. We've got a chance, we've got to take the chance of getting to know him. And, and trying to minister to him. And uh, he's like going, you know, we, we can't go on like this. Um, you know, uh, what are we going to do about that? Because let's be honest, there are people who annoy us, people that we're going like, I don't want to spend time with those people and stuff. And you know what? He's got an answer for us. And I think this is good because he's not asking us, hey, you got to change your feelings, right? How can you do that? It's just... But he's going like, we got to change our actions. And he says in James 2, 12 to 13, he says, whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There'll be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But you have, if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. You know that word mercy, you know what that means. It means to treat others better than they deserve. And, you know, just saying that we got to be merciful you know what that implies? It means that we feel that there are annoying people. He's going, yeah, there are annoying people in your life, you know? But he's going, I want you to, in your actions and what you say, I want you to love them anyway. You do that because you've been shown mercy too. I've been shown mercy as well. I, I thought, you know, yeah, you know, there are times when I've been really just annoying to God. And I thought it, what came to my mind really fast was, okay, it was last week, and I'm praying, and in the middle of a sentence that I'm talking to God, I start thinking, hey, I wonder what the weather's going to be like. So I pull out my phone, and I'm checking the weather, and I'm looking at that long-range forecast. I'm going like, hmm, calculating school and stuff like that. And I'm going like, I can imagine God's going, that's annoying. It's so rude. You're trying to talk to me, you know, the one who loves you, the creator of the universe, and you're just like walking away from it like that? But... He's going, I'm, I'm merciful to you anyway. I love you anyway. You know, that's the kind of God we serve. And he's going, that's the kind of person we got to be as his spirit flows within us. Uh, the key to reigning in my tendency toward partiality is to be merciful, to be merciful. Now, he ties this in with just, do we really have faith? So he goes, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? 
know what he's confronting here? We've got this attitude about faith where we go like, you know what, if I know the right stuff, that's probably faith, right? I got the history down of what Jesus did. Uh, and he's going, you know what, hey, people, bulletin, Satan knows all that stuff, right? In fact, Satan probably knows better theology than any person who's ever walked the earth. But that's not faith. That's not faith. It's got to be something more than that. I remember uh, one time, this was years ago, I had this uh, girl in my class. She raises her hand one day. She goes, Mr. Fenske, this is a Lutheran school, okay? She goes like, Mr. Fenske, do you believe that Catholics can be saved? And uh, I'm going like, what do you think? She goes like, well, if they believe at least 50% of what Lutherans believe, they can be saved. <laughs> you understand that? It's like, the Lutherans, first of all, her attitude was, they're correct, okay? They got it, they got it together. And then she's going like, but you got to have the majority of their views. It's like, that's, that's about it. Now, let me explain really how faith and deeds are, are related here. Uh, I want to show you what I think real faith is all about. And I want to use an illustration I used years ago. Okay, so you're looking at right here the Patronus Towers in Kuala Lumpur. Largest structure that's uh, twin towers that are connected in the world. Okay, so it's over 100 stories high. Quite a thing. I had a, a foreign student last uh, two years ago who had been there and visited it. She, she said it was pretty impressive. And uh, anyway, they're trying to figure out how to build this, but steel is very, very expensive in that part of Asia. So they couldn't use steel. They thought, we've got to use concrete. But if you put up a building that big with, uh, that's concrete, that's one heavy building, right? What are you going to do? How are you going to make it happen to hold that thing up? And so they realized we're going to have to go all the way down to bedrock here. And so they dug a foundation that was 36 stories deep. Can you believe that? I mean, that's in the ground more, higher than almost any building in Cleveland, right? But they had to build it that big to support the structure that was on top, okay? And I think that's a good picture of what faith is like because... Anytime you've had faith in anybody or anything, right? You've had this experience. You look at their track record. You look at their past performance, right? So you go like, well, what have they done in the past? Are they, can I trust them? And so you look at their past performance, and then based on that, you go into action based on trust for the future. And that would be what we would call faith. Uh, so I'll give you an example of this from my life. Two things that I have faith in. Okay, number one on the left is Southwest Airlines. So like last summer when we went uh, various places in the country and visited our kids at very cheap prices, by the way, at that time, um, we took Southwest. Why? Because I've flown Southwest before a number of times, and they always leave on time, at least in my experience. They arrive on time. You don't sit on the tarmac for two hours. Uh, their prices are really transparent. When I've had to change a flight, no charge, carry the bags on, you know, without charge or check them even. And their flight attendants are usually pretty, like, uh, funny. So I'm going, like, good thing. So, like, last summer I was being tempted by Spirit and Frontier, and they're going, hey, we got cheaper prices here, buddy. You know, I'm going, no, no, I have faith in Southwest. Their past performance is awesome. And on the right there is Westgate Sunoco, where I take my cars. Now, those of you who drive like used cars, you know what I'm talking about. You gotta find an honest guy to take care of your cars, right? Somebody that you can totally like trust. 
And these guys have been good to me through many years. You know, they've been honest. They've got done quality work. When they say they're going to be done at a certain time, they get done at a certain time. And so, like, uh, a couple weeks ago, I take my car in, and the guy goes, you know, uh, you're going to need, need new tires. I would suggest that you get them now because there's still more winter. So I'm going, like, what would you suggest? So he suggests, well, this is a pretty good brand and stuff. And he, he goes, like, here's the price. And I'm going, like, whoa, those are pretty expensive tires, you know. And he goes, like, you know, trust me on this. He said, these things are going to last you a long time, and you're going to be really pleased with their performance. So based on their past performance at that place, I bought the tires. You know, so that's what faith looks like, I think. Now, faith in the Lord is the same kind of thing, isn't it? So based on the foundation of God's past performance, the grace that he's shown us in the past, that's the foundation that we're being built on. I act trusting in the promise of God's future grace. So like in Romans 8.32, it says, if God was willing to give up his son for us all, how much more will he not give us all good things? He's done it in the past. He's going to do it again in the future if you just trust him. And so the cross, that's what God did in the past, right? Jesus went to the cross. He paid for my sins through this terrible time of suffering and death. You know what? That persuades me. Based on that foundation, I believe that I can trust God to love me in spite of moral failure. Those times when I have done wrong, when I've been rebellious, and Satan comes to me and he goes like, you are done, you're finished, there is no way God can love you. I can go like, no, I believe that he loves me in spite of my moral failure based on what he has done. That's why you come in here any week, I guarantee you're going to hear about the cross of Jesus. And somebody might come in here and they go like, who isn't clued in, they go like, why do they keep talking about that every week? Hey, that's the foundation of our trust that we, as, as, as uh, flawed as we are, that we're still going to be someone who's still loved. And, you know, the resurrection persuades me I can trust God in the face of death. The fact that Jesus rose and that because he lives, I will live also. I don't have to be afraid of death. You know, when you start getting older, you start thinking more seriously about that stuff. You go like, whoa, I, I don't think I'm actually like immortal in this world anymore. You know, and... You know, think about this whole year, uh, the pandemic paranoia that goes up and down, right? So we'll have these times, to go, oh, it's terrible, oh, the numbers are rising, we're all going to die, you know? And then think numbers will go down, and we'll say, okay, everything. No, it's going back up again. And I don't have to be one of these, you know, somebody who's afraid. I don't have to sit there and go, whoa, what's, woe is me. I know I've got this future. The resurrection persuades me I can trust God in the face of death. I'm going to be alive as long as Jesus is alive. Not in this world that long, but I'm going to be alive with him. And you know what? Those two things together, the love and the commitment of the cross and the resurrection, they persuade me that I can trust God's prescriptions for my life. I mean, just the fact that he would come for me, he'd come for you, and then he'd go through this torment and everything he went through and die and then rise again, that love for us. And I'm going like, you know what? When he tells me to live a certain way, it's for my best interests. I know he's... He, so if he goes like, here's how I want you to manage your marriage. 
Here's how I want you to manage your finances. Here's how I want you to manage your sexual life. Here's how I want you to manage your entertainment and your pleasures. I can trust that God is, is good and that he is he's steering me in the right direction. I've got that foundation and I can build on that in my life right now and in the future. And he, so he gives this example of Abraham. And he goes, don't you remember our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His faith was activated, right? His actions made his faith complete. The story of Abraham, he was told to sacrifice his son. This went against everything Abraham ever believed, against every, any, everything that Abraham ever wanted to do. And, you know, when God told him to do it, he says, Take your son, verse 2. Your son. I mean, this is like Abraham's future after he leaves this world to be with the Lord. He's going like, whoa, it's wrapped up there. And then God emphasizes, your only son. If you read Genesis, Abraham had another kid. A kid who was older, right? But everything was wrapped up in this child of the promise in Isaac. He's like, man, it's all on him. I got no fallback position. It isn't like I got another thing here and another there. No, this is it. And then he says, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much. You know, it wasn't like, oh, Isaac, you had a kid that you uh, are irritated with all the time and he's, he's a punk and, you know, oh, kill him. No, he's going like, this is a kid that you're like, oh, your whole heart is bound up in this kid. But you know what? Abraham had over 100 years of experience with God's goodness. He's going, I can trust God. You know, and it turned out to be a test after all. They came back. You know, it's like faith enables me to act contrary to my own desires when Jesus says to, because I trust his love for me. That's been my prayer for myself uh, for 2021. It's like, Lord, help me. Lord Jesus, help me to love you more than I love my own desires and my own pleasures. You know, I pray that every day. You know, that's what Abraham was, that's what he did. Uh, and so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted it, accounted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. It's like that's the basis of real relationship, isn't it? Every relationship we've really got is based on that trust. And then he gives us an example also of Rahab, and we had a, sermon on her not too long ago but remember how she basically turned her back on her country and even her family to support these spies uh, and it, like he says in verse 28 just as the body is dead without breath so also faith is dead without good works I was talking with a couple of friends uh, a week or two ago and you know they were just sharing about like missionary experience all over the world and they mentioned, like in, in the country of Turkey, that there, um, there's like 80 million people, just 7,000 Christians. And they said, you know what the problem is? When people come to faith in that country, there's such a pressure that to be a true Turk, you must be a Muslim. And to be a true member of our family and not get disowned, you must be a Muslim. He said 90% of people who profess faith in Jesus fall away within three years. Pressures are so great, the sacrifice is so large. And you know, that's, that's something that Rahab passed the test. Her faith, you know, God enabled her to do something that was great, 
great sacrifice. Faith enables me to sacrifice everything when Jesus says to, because I trust him. You know, and sometimes it's just a, a reputation, you know. Uh, I, I saw this in the Babylon Bee, which is like an ironic website, kind of like The Onion. And it said, man bravely abandons unpopular Christian belief to affirm extremely popular cultural belief. You know, if we're going to live in America in 2021 and be followers of Jesus, there are going to be some extremely unpopular Christian beliefs that if we've got faith, we're not going to abandon, even though the popular belief is going to be going in the opposite direction. I wanted to just wrap this up by showing you uh, a clip from Francis Chan that uh, I show to my classes that just kind of summarizes this so well. And I'm going to tell you the stupidest thing I ever did in my church. Okay, 16 years as a pastor, stupidest thing. And I said, I said, hey, how many of you guys believe that I'm going to, I, I can hit that balloon on the first shot? And about 75% of the people raised their hand. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. You believe in me. Then I said, how many of you believe so much that you're willing to hold the balloon in your hand? <laughs> and there were still like 10, 20 people still had their hands up. I'm like, wow, thank you. That's some confidence. There's some belief. And then I said, okay, you're willing to hold the balloon between his teeth. And there were two people that still had their hands up. And so I thought this might happen. So I, I, I said, hey, I told one of the guys, oh, come on up here. And I was just going to scare him, you know, and I had this medical release form, you know, saying, okay, I'm not liable. You got a sign right here. And I go, okay, stand over there and put the balloon, the balloon between your teeth. And so he does. He's just standing sideways like this. And I thought, I can't believe it. So I just wanted to scare him. You know, I just want to scare this guy so bad. So I picked up the gun and he's still standing there. And then I thought, I can hit that. <laughs> and I pulled the trigger and I hit the balloon. And I thought everyone was going to clap, but the whole church is like, you're so stupid. You know, these lawyers, everyone else coming up to me afterwards, like, do you know we could have lost the whole church? I go, but I hit it, you know? And, and then I was so dumb. Please, no one ever do that. Stupidest thing I've ever done. But my point was this. My point to the church was how many believers were in the room at that point? Was it the 75% that raised their hand and said, oh, we believe? Was it the, the 20 people that said, yeah, I'll hold it in my hand? I mean, how many true believers were in that room? Or was it just that one guy that stuck it between his teeth? See, when I read the Bible, yes, it does say that God so loved the world that, that, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It does say that anyone who truly believes in Jesus is going to go to heaven. The question is, is what does it mean to believe? Is it those of you who raise your hand during a prayer and say, eh, yeah, I think so. Is it those of you who get baptized and take it a step? Or is it those that are willing to stick this thing between your teeth? And you go, you know what, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll speak up for you. I'll live for you. I am not going to, I am not going to, I'm not going to deny you on this earth. I'm going to follow you to the end, no matter what it means. The person who sticks this sticks this thing between his teeth. Let's pray. 
Father, I, I pray that each one of us in here would be one who would follow you to the end. And Lord, I, I thank you that you have demonstrated again and again and again and again in our lives how much you do love us. And so, Lord, I pray you'd give us resilient faith and the strength to follow you no matter where you lead us. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for enabling us to do this great thing that we could never do on our own. And we pray this in the one who made it possible, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.